All right, welcome back to the listener's commentary on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In this session, we're going to be looking at Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. And it is a fantastic, beautiful passage of Scripture. Um, It is an unusual passage of Scripture in Paul's letters in that it really is a long, sustained praise of God for everything he has done in Christ Jesus. And it breaks Paul's usual pattern. Normally in Paul's letters, he goes uh, introduction and greetings, right? His name, the recipient's name, greeting, and then he goes thanksgiving. That's the way it normally works. And then some sort of prayer. You don't get that in Galatians because Paul is really upset with them. And so you get no thanksgiving or prayer there, just jumping right into it. But in most of his letters, that's what you get. Paul's name, their name, Greetings, thanksgiving, prayer. But that's not what we have here in Ephesians. We have Paul's name, their name, the greetings, and then instead of his normal pattern, thanksgiving and prayer, Paul breaks that pattern to spend these next handful of verses praising God for everything he's done in Christ. He'll actually come to his thanksgiving in chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, and his prayer then in, in verse 17 and following. But before that, He has this lengthy praise and benediction for everything God has done in Christ. Among the Jews, this type of benediction is called a barakah benediction because of the word for blessed that it begins with. The the Hebrew word barakah is blessed, and this begins, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That word blessed leads to these to be calling like a barakah benediction or a barakah blessing, a, a praise of God that begins with this blessed be God. And it was a very common Jewish way of praising God. You actually see it in the Psalms even, like Psalm 103. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's blessing God. He's speaking words of blessing, words of praise, good words about God in this section. Um, And this particular blessing of God here in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 is actually one long sustained sentence. It's 202 words. Paul just bubbles over with praise and admiration and wonder uh, for who God is and all the good things God has done in Christ. And it just shows up in sort of this run-on, extemporaneous, and yet well-organized sentence. And because it's one long sentence, as we read it and try to sort out some of the details of what Paul is saying, it gets a little complicated because we're not sure Well, does this phrase go with what follows or with what precedes? And so there's some difficulties, and we'll try to sort those out as we go through the commentary. But overall, just take it for what it is and let it wash over you in this magnificent praise of God and and what he's done for us in Jesus. Some of the key features in this long blessing of God are in Christ. As you read through it, pay attention to that. In Christ, in him, in the beloved, Words that refer to Christ or talk about Christ are used over and over and over again in this sentence. Um, And if you count things that are like through Christ Jesus or through his blood, man, you just have a, like in a very compressed short space, you have just a massive emphasis on in Christ. And so Paul wants us to know that 
Uh, what God has done in Christ is worthy of our praise. It's everything God was planning and everything God's up to in the universe. It's focused on Christ. It culminates in Christ. It's, it's experienced in Christ. It's all about being in Christ. And so it helps us learn proper Christian geography. Do you want to experience all the spiritual blessings that God has to offer for all of humankind? Well, the way to do it is to be in Christ. You've got to change your address and you've got to move from outside of Jesus to inside of Jesus. So that's really important, in Christ. The other really key feature here, another one that's really important, is there are three participles. All right, that's technical. You probably don't remember participles from your, you know, your grammar school or anything like that, but participles uh, are just a kind of a verbal adjective. And, and so there are three of them. They're I, usually ing words, and they show up here as having blessed. So we praise God because he has the one who blessed us with every spiritual blessing. So having blessed, and then having predestined. And he's the one who predestined us as his people. And then having made known. And those three participles highlight the main categories that Paul is praising God for. Having blessed us with spiritual blessings. Having predestined us to adoption. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. Those are the three big categories that Paul is praising God for in this sentence. And then there's also another key feature, the third one here. There's also like almost a chorus or a refrain to this praise. You hear it at several points, three different places in the praise, where God did all this, to the praise of the glory of his grace, to the praise of his glory, to the praise of his glory. That refrain shows up that what God has done in Christ, and those now who are formed in Christ and experiencing what God has done, they exist for the praise of God's glory. They exist to be the display of God's wisdom and glory and grace and power. So it's all to the praise of God's glory. And so pay attention to that refrain as you read down through this long sentence, okay? Now with that by way of introduction, let's just jump in and hit a few details so that we can at least understand and hear what Paul is saying. And let's work through those details and just try to really piece together uh, Paul's big praise to God. And so it, there's a risk when you do this. When you go down through something, you begin to tear it apart and you you break apart it into details, you kind of lose the flavor and the feel and the beauty, particularly of a text like this. So here's what I would encourage you to do. I would encourage you just to sit down and read straight through it and let it wash over you and then go back through it and listen to some of this teaching on the details. And then once you're done hearing the details and you have a sense of more what's being said, then go back and just read it and pray through it and meditate on it so that you you hear it, then you kind of break it apart and get some of the details. And now that you got the details, you go back with fresh insight and fresh, uh, deeper understanding. And then you just sit in it. And you, with Paul, you enjoy the magnitude of God's grace. That's how I would encourage you to use this section of this commentary and really hear this section of Paul's letter in Ephesians. All right, so with that, let's work down through the details of Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Paul says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so again, notice the word blessed, this very typical Jewish way of communicating your praise to God. Blessed be the God. In fact, among the Jews and some of the rabbinic writings, they speak of like the 18 blessings, the 18 benedictions. And there were various blessings of God that many Jews would pray on a daily basis as a way of 
staying in connection with God and communicating their gratitude to God and praising God for everything he's done. And so this is a very stereotypical Jewish way of praising God. And Paul just launches into this here. So blessed be, and literally the word blessed means it's the, the Greek idea of this word. Originally, this was a Hebrew word, but in Greek here in Ephesians, it just is literally good words. Let's say good words about God. Let's speak those good words. So blessed be uh, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, praise to him. If you read it in the NIV, it'll just say that. Praise to, notice, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a very common way Paul describes God, that he is known not just as God the creator in general, but now because of what has been done in Jesus, he's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the and the full understanding of God and who he is and what he's done is at its deepest core now is revealed in Jesus. And then Paul states the first real reason why he's praising God here. He says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us. Notice the play on words. Blessed be God because he has blessed us. He has given good things to us. And so blessed be God because he has blessed us. Well, what has he blessed us with? And there's a lot of things you could fill in after that, right? Like he's blessed us with. Um, and Paul is not opposed to putting some of those things in. When you read some of the blessing prayers among the Jews. It speaks of him blessing us with the fruit of the vine or blessing us with food or blessing us with every good thing from creation. Those are appropriate things to praise God for. But here, Paul is focusing on a different set of things. God is the one who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And when he says every spiritual blessing, we're tempted, I think, in the modern context to hear spiritual as opposed to physical, right? Like spiritual as opposed to material. And so spiritual just becomes the immaterial things, the things that you aren't physical, the things you can't see and touch. And certainly there's a appropriate sense of that, but that's not the primary force of the word spiritual in Paul's writings. When he says every spiritual blessing, he means blessings from the Spirit, the very Spirit of God, who now lives in and among God's people and who has blessed them with his presence and with the good things from God. So don't just take this as in spiritual as opposed to material. That's not Paul's primary thought. He's thinking of blessings that come from God's spirit now that we're in Christ. And so God has blessed us not just with a few blessings from God's spirit, not just with some spiritual blessings or a few spiritual blessings. Notice what he says. God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing, all spiritual blessings. Like Anything that God has to offer in and by and through his spirit, he's given it to us by his spirit in Christ. And so he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And where has he done that at? Well, in the heavenlies, in the heavenly places in Christ. That phrase, heavenly places, is unique really to the letter to Ephesians. It shows up five times in Ephesians and nowhere else exactly like this anywhere else in Paul's writings. And so what does it refer to when it says God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places? What does he mean by heavenly places? Well, here's the interesting thing. In Ephesians, since it's unique to this letter, we have an understanding of how Paul is using it here. And what we see is 
even later in Ephesians, some of the rulers and the, pow the powers, they, they act in the heavenly places. And those rulers and powers are kind of antithetical to God. They're opposed to God. And so the heavenly places here can't just be like God's realm. It can't just be like heaven because it's also the place where the spiritual powers who are opposed to God are at work. And so the best way to understand what Paul means by heavenly places in Ephesians is it refers to the unseen side of reality, the unseen side, especially of human experience, human existence, where um, there is this 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 reality that's just part of the universe, part of our experience, part of human existence, um, but it's not visible. It's not seen to us. And in those places, God is at work and God dwells, but also in those places are um, spiritual powers and spiritual authorities. And if you listen to the backstory on Ephesians, you'll understand that in Ephesus and Asia Minor, the whole surrounding area, they had a very strong sense of that unseen side of reality. They lived in great fear of it. And when, as a result, it was a stronghold for magical practices, and they had all sorts of spells and amulets and incantations to protect them from spiritual forces and from spiritual powers to help uh, them maybe advantage them in life by saying the right incantation and using the right formula. And so they had a very strong sense of this unseen side of reality and they tended to live in fear of it. Well, now that they've come into Christ, they need to realize that God's the one who's ultimately in charge of that unseen side of reality. And God's the one who um, is at work there. And in Christ, they have experienced not things they need to be afraid of in the heavenly places, not things they need to worry about trying to manipulate and control to protect themselves or advantage themselves. They've already experienced every spiritual blessing that God has to offer in that very unseen side of ex existence in those heavenly places. And so we experience the heavenly places. We experience the unseen side of reality even though we can't see it. It's the sphere where God rules, where Christ has now attained supremacy. And so now it's the source of blessing, not the source of anxiety and fear that they had lived with prior to coming into Christ. And so blessed be the God and Father who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. And then he goes on to begin to list off some of those blessings. And so in a lot of ways, what you should see happening in verse 4 and following is almost like there's a colon at the end of verse 3. And then we have kind of like the list of blessings. What, what all did he, he give us in Christ? In fact, if you just paused right here and read down 4 through 14 and just highlight or list off or maybe even get out a notepad and list off what are all the blessings that he did he gave us in Christ Jesus. It would be helpful just to see what the kinds of things that God has done for us and what Paul's praising him for. And so let's begin to work down through that list. He says in verse four, just as, insofar as, here's the first one, he chose us. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. A couple of really important details. Um, notice he chose us in him. Again, this emphasis on in Christ. And we're going to see this all throughout that Jesus is the ultimate chosen one. And in him, we are now part of God's chosen people. That's the emphasis. When it says he chose him, what he's saying is 
Um, we are part of God's chosen people, what Israel was in the Old Testament. Um, now those in Christ are in the New Testament, that God's great plan to fulfill the promise to Abraham and to bring his blessing to all mankind and to reverse the curse of sin and death and the fall, God has fulfilled that in Jesus. And so now in Jesus, um, mankind is now really the fulfillment of God's plans and purposes. And God did this before the foundation of the world. In other words, way back before God created the, the world, God dreamed up this idea of a, a redeemed, restored humanity among whom he could live and through whom he could flesh out his character, his people. He dreamed this up before the foundation of the world. It would be his people united together as one and formed together in the Messiah. And so God knew long before he created the world what creating the world would cost. He knew what would happen, and he had a plan. And that plan was Jesus and bringing people together in Jesus. And so God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. And why did he choose us? Um, well, he chose us ultimately that we should be holy and blameless before him. Um, Notice that, that the ultimate goal of forming us as his people is that we should be holy and blameless. That was true when he chose Israel in the Old Testament, that they were supposed to be God's holy people. Be holy as I am holy, says the Lord God Almighty. That's his words to Israel. God chose them, called them out of Egypt, redeemed them, made them his own, established them as his people, and then gave them this responsibility to be his holy people. Again, so that his purposes could be achieved through them, so that his glory could be displayed through them. And so he chose them to be holy and blameless. And now in the fulfillment of all of those purposes and all those plans in Christ, the same is true about God's people in Christ. We are chosen that we should be holy and blameless before him, that we should be God's holy people. So that's who we are. That's who we are. As those in Christ, we are God's chosen people. And there's a sense of dignity that comes with that, right? There's a sense of honor. There's a sense of Man, other people may have rejected me. Other people may look down on us as God's people. We may be small and unimportant by society's eyes or by the world's eyes, but we are chosen in Christ as God's people. We exist before him, and we've been blessed with every spiritual blessing. So there's this sense of position and honor and dignity and responsibility that comes with being his people to be holy and blameless so that we honor him and we represent him well in the world. And so we have received this blessing of being his people from God. And now the responsibility we have is to reflect the beauty of that position and that status back into the world to show the wisdom and the goodness and the holiness and the beauty of God. That's who we are as God's chosen people. Well, Paul continues on in his praise by saying, In love he predestined us to the adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And that first phrase, in love, again, because it's really one long sentence, it's not clear. Does in love go with holy and blameless? We're supposed to be holy and blameless before him in love? Could be that. Uh, the translation I'm working out of, the New American Standard, puts it with what follows, in love he predestined us. 
And again, there wasn't a period there in the original manuscripts. There wasn't uh, any punctuation. And so we don't know really where it goes. And it works either way, that we were chosen to be holy and blameless before him in love, that the, the ultimate expression of our holiness and blamelessness is love. That's possible. Or that it was in love he predestined us. Both are true biblically. Both are true theologically. It's not 100% clear here. And so I wouldn't worry too much about it. I tend to think the New American Standard is on the right track here, but not really sure. Um, Frank Thielman in his commentary actually points out that um, it seems like in this praise, Paul always qualifies a verb after it and not before it here in this sentence. And so he thinks that that maybe it goes with holiness and blamelessness because of that. And so it could be just because of the way the sentence seems to work. Um, but either way works. And so let's not worry too much about that. Either way, um, that that love is at the heart of this, either in our expression of what God has done for us or in God's predestining us, motivated by love. And so in love, he predestined us, verse 5. And this is really describing what it means to be chosen. And having predestined us describes sort of the manner in which, the way in which God chose us uh, before him. He predestined us. It's what in Greek, if you like the technical stuff, it's an aorist participle, which uh, really amplifies the manner or the nature of the choosing. What does it mean to be chosen by God? Well, it means that God pre-planned this. He pre-decided this. Um, he had this all planned out that we should be adopted into God's family. And that's what we're predestined here. Notice, he predestined us unto adoption as sons. That's what we're predestined to. So to be chosen in him also means that we were predestined to adoption as sons. Now, if you're listening to this and you're a female, don't take offense at the fact that it's uh, says adoption as sons. Part of that is just the nature of the language that in Greek language, whether um, it's an only male group or a mixed company group of males and females, they always use the masculine noun for that. So that's just part of a grammar thing. It's also a cultural thing. Culturally, the idea of adoption as sons, sometimes say, for example, if a king uh, wanted so-and-so to be his heir and rule on his throne, even if he wasn't a legitimate offspring, a biological offspring, he would adopt him as his son to be his heir. That was one of the ways adoption played out. Um, and so now he would rule on his throne. Well, this is very much the idea here. In fact, in Paul's writings, this idea of adoption shows up a handful of times. And in the context where it shows up um, all the time, it has to do with inheritance. Inheritance. And so that's really the idea here. Is to be adopted as God's children means that you get to inherit all of God's blessings, everything that God has for his people, everything that God's planned for the world, you're an heir to that. And that's the idea. In fact, we'll see very explicitly the idea of inheritance is going to show up in this praise to God. And so he's praising God that when God planned to choose a people for himself and the Messiah, that part of that meant he predestined them. He planned ahead of time that their ultimate destiny would be to be adopted as his children through Jesus Christ to himself, so that they can inherit all that God has to offer. That's the idea of this. So having been predestined, 
unto adoption as God's children through Jesus Christ. Notice that again, it's in Jesus. It's through the work of Jesus. It's through what Jesus did that we have this incredible blessing of now being welcomed into the very family of God and getting to inherit everything he has to offer. Now, let's just pause for a second before we keep tracking with what Paul is saying. Take a little bit of a theological side, because this word predestination and the idea of predestination really raises a lot of questions because of theological history and the theological baggage that goes with it. There are some schools of thought, some schools of theologian that um, understand predestination to mean God predestines some people to faith, some people to become believers and others not. And that is typically associated with Calvinism or the Reformed school of thought. Well, is that what Paul is saying? Because of that theological history, that raises the question, well, does that mean that God really does predestine some people to become believers and other people, well, there's no hope for them. God didn't plan for them to be part of his people. And some theologians actually say, well, no, that's not the way it is. God doesn't do that. It, people choose to become part of his family and all that. Here's what I want you to notice here in Ephesians chapter 1, what we're predestined to. It says he predestined us unto the adoption as sons. In other words, this is this is a benefit, this is a blessing of being in Christ and being part of his people. And in my understanding of the New Testament, my reading of the, the, the New Testament, I don't see anywhere where it says that uh, God predestines certain people to faith, which are which is the means of entering into Christ. I, I never see that God predestines some people to faith and other people not. And thus I can't see that a full Reformed, full Calvinistic approach makes sense because that that's what they say, that God predestines some people to, be, to believe, some unbelievers to become believers. What I see Scripture teaching is that God predestines all believers to become his children, right? Like uh, what the New Testament seems to repeatedly say is that God doesn't predestine unbelievers to become believers, but God predestines believers to the outcomes of, to the benefits of that belief. Here, adoption as sons. Uh, in Romans chapter 8, for example, to being conformed to the image of his son. And so I think it's best that we take each of these texts about predestination in their own context, hear what they're saying in their own context. But even when we do that, uh, I, I really have a hard time seeing the idea of uh, what Calvinists or Reformed theologians teach, and that is that God predestines uh, some people, some unbelievers, to become believers. It doesn't seem to be what he's saying. That doesn't seem to be the emphasis on what it falls. Now, what is clear and what we have to emphasize is that both having been chosen by God and having been predestined by God does put an emphasis on God's uh, initiative in salvation, that this was God's idea, this was God's plan, this was God's purposes, and he worked to make it happen. And we only get to experience because experience it because of God's goodness, God's grace, God's plan, and God's initiative. And so that part of um, the Calvinist emphasis, I, I think is really important for us to remember that uh, even though I think God predestines believers to this, it 
it's only available and there's only an invitation and there's only the opportunity of this because of God's initiative and salvation. So that's how I understand this text as well as other texts about predestination in the New Testament. And so back to Paul's thought here in Ephesians chapter 1, God is the one who predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself. And so he brought us to himself as his children. Now we get to to experience him. We get to experience his goodness. We get to experience him as our father and the blessings of what that means to be part of his family. And so he predestined us through Jesus Christ to himself. And he did this, notice, in this translation, according to the kind intention of his will, or maybe more literally, according to his good pleasure. Literally, kind intention is his good pleasure. In other words, this is God's heart that did this. God was pleased to do this. There was a benevolence and a goodness uh, that wanted to do this, that God's kind heart derives pleasure from planning this and carrying out this plan and drawing people to himself and making us his people in Christ. And so God purposed it. He wanted to do it all because it brought him pleasure. He took pleasure in doing this. And then ultimately, why did he do this? Well, he did this, verse 6, first appearance of the refrain, to the praise of the glory of his grace. God did this ultimately for our benefit, for our joy, for our blessing, but ultimately to the praise of the glory of his magnificent grace. It, this was motivated by his grace. It's an expression of his grace. And so his grace gets the honor. His grace gets the glory to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Notice that, that this is all done because of God's grace. This is all to the praise of his grace and which he says this grace is he freely bestowed on us. Literally, that phrase freely bestowed is just the verb form of the noun grace. So it's to the praise of the glory of his grace, which he graced us with in the beloved, that he freely gave to us, gifted to us. This is a gift motivated by his grace, carried out by his grace. It's all about his grace, which he freely graced us with in the beloved. The beloved is Jesus. In Jesus, his beloved son, that we experience all of this in the son that God loves, in the beloved son of God. That's the first part of Paul's praise to God for everything he's done for us in Jesus. We'll get the second part in the next recording. But before we leave this, let me just draw out a really important implication from what Paul has praised God for here, and that is this sense of belonging, this sense of place, this sense of identity. So often we let what other people say about us, we let what the world says about us, we let what our family of origin uh, did to us define us and shape us, and all those messages that come from society and our family and other people, our own shortcomings and our own foot, all the messaging that comes from that, sometimes we tack onto the billboard of our soul as if we don't matter, you're not good enough, you don't measure up, nobody loves you, nobody cares about you, how could you think you're special, you could never do it. And we tag all those things as these negative reminders of our deficiency, our inadequacy, and our shortcoming onto the billboard of our soul. And um, what Paul has praised God for here changes all of that. 
And so rather than listening to all those negative messages that so often tear us down and make us feel like we're worthless, let's listen to what God has done for us in Jesus. He chose us. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing. He chose us as his own people. He gave us the dignity of being those who get to display his character and his glory to the world. He predestined us to be part of his family. He, he wanted that. It, it brought him pleasure to do that. He poured out his grace upon us in Jesus so that we could exist for the praise of the glory of this great creator and redeemer of all mankind. That's who you are. And so whatever messages you have believed about yourself or have been told about yourself in the past, believe the message of what God has done for you in Jesus and let your identity in Christ be the, shape, the thing that shapes your life, shapes your self-talk, uh, shapes the messages you believe about yourself. This is who you are. You are part of God's chosen people. You are a child of God, chosen by him to display his glory, and to declare his grace uh, for the praise of his glory. That's who you are. Never forget it. Never doubt it. Believe it like Paul believed it and praise God for it. And may your life reflect the wonder and the beauty of that each and every day.